now what you've actually been waiting for. Um, on your behalf, I am delighted to welcome today's special guest, the Honourable Tom Mulcair. Um, this is his first speech in Toronto as the leader of Canada's official opposition and of Canada's New Democrats, and we are delighted that you're here at the Canadian Club today. Ottawa-born and Quebec-raised, he is the second of ten children, which I think is as sure as any sign of success for politics. Uh, he began his professional life as a lawyer in Quebec, um, where he worked in the legislative branch of the Justice Ministry, in the Legal Affairs Directorate of the Conseil de la Langue Française, and in the Quebec, Quebec Professions Board, where he was the president from 1987 until 1993. He was first elected as a member for the Quebec National Assembly in 1994. During his provincial political career, he served as the justice critic, the industry critic, and also the Minister of Sustainable Development, Environment and Parks. In 2007, Mr. Mulcair accepted Jack Layton's invitation to become his Quebec Lieutenant and was soon elected as a Member of Parliament, only the second ever NDP MP elected from Quebec. And there might be a book for if anyone can guess the first one. Uh, the rest, as they say, is history. As we know, the NDP made a spectacular breakthrough in Quebec in the 2011 election and became the official opposition for the very first time in our country's history. This afternoon, Mr. Mulcair will talk to us about building a balanced 21st century economy. He has also kindly agreed to take questions from you, from the audience. Um, so you'll see on your tables there's a Q&A card. So if you have a question along the way, if you could please fill it out, hold it in the air, and one of our volunteers will come and collect it. I think it's fair to say that we are embarking on a new era in Canadian politics, and we're delighted, Mr. Mulcair, to have you with us. Thank you, and the podium is yours. Merci beaucoup, Alison. Thank you very much. Distinguished head table guests, distinguished invités, mesdames et messieurs, chers amis, brothers and sisters. I always joke about that in the NDP because I used to talk about my brothers and sisters a lot, and I found out that that was a, a normal form of address. We do have a lot of people who are part of our economy and who work in organized labor who are here with us joining us today. Ça me fait plaisir d'être ici avec vous aujourd'hui pour discuter des moyens que nous allons mettre en œuvre ensemble pour construire une économie forte et équilibrée, une économie digne de notre siècle. But first, I'd like to begin with an apology. I see that uh, the head of Goldman Sachs, Lloyd Blankfein, spoke here last week. So I have to apologize to those of you who will have to sit through what is essentially the same speech twice. <laughs> well, as well, you have to remember, the Globe and Mail pointed out that he had his socialist moment on this stage, calling for a fairer distribution of wealth in our society. Lloyd and I have been borrowing each other's material for years. <laughs> but now that you know what he's called for, I guess we could say that the Lloyd giveth and the Lloyd taketh away. <laughs> because we have to recall that he did mention that Goldman Sachs was doing, and I quote him, God's work. I imagine that many here today, to one degree or another, feel that they have a pretty solid understanding of the NDP's approach to the economy. But the truth is there's a great deal about our party's economic record that I think will surprise you. For instance, according to Statistics Canada, 
when you combine all budgets at the federal, provincial, and territorial level, it's the NDP, not the Conservatives, not the Liberals, who have balanced budgets more often than any other party. Okay, I can see the cartoon bubble over your heads. I'll admit there was one notable exception here, but he's with the Liberals now. <laughs> and it was an NDP government in Manitoba that introduced the lowest small business tax rate in the country, 0%. And we're now in our fourth consecutive majority NDP government in Manitoba. Oh, and by the way, today Manitoba has one of the lowest rates of unemployment in the country, and the two are very much connected. So today I'd like to give you a broader view of the new democratic vision for our economy than what you may have seen in the past. Today, our economy faces challenges unlike anything we've seen since the Great Depression. In the last 10 years, we've lost over 500,000 high-paying manufacturing jobs, jobs that had enough of a salary for a family to live on, and that came with a pension. After over a decade of trade surpluses, Canada is now running a $50 billion a year current account trade deficit. Household debt is at an all-time high in our country. Productivity is at a record low. And of course, the global economy is in a state of unprecedented uncertainty. But I'd like to begin with a subject closer to home. I spent a great deal of time traveling across southern Ontario lately visiting the chambers of commerce and business people, with labour and community leaders, with mayors and councillors in many of the region's largest cities. It's, an, it's been an opportunity for me to talk about our party's vision for the future, but especially to listen, to learn about the challenges facing these communities. And I don't need to tell you that these communities are facing real challenges. When we think of a city in southwestern Ontario losing another factory and the high-paying jobs that go with it, of course we think of the families who no longer have a livelihood. But we also have to think about the municipality that's lost a key part of its tax base and local re retailers who've lost a key part of their customer base. Today in Hamilton, St. Catharines, Niagara, Brantford, London, Windsor, Oshawa, and yes, even here in Toronto, unemployment is above the national average. The econ economic engine of Southern Ontario has been hit by a perfect storm. Increased competition from abroad, an artificially high Canadian dollar, more on that later, and the worst global economic downturn in more than eight decades. This is not a time to shy away from tough issues, and it would be naive to tell ourselves that this storm we will face is going to simply pass over time as others have in decades past. The world has changed in the last 30 years. It's more competitive than ever. It's more interconnected than ever. The challenges we face run deeper than ever. And while these challenges may be driven by global forces, that doesn't mean we're powerless. The greatest challenge we face is not a failure of ability, it's a failure of leadership. But if we work together, if we're willing to face down the tough issues and tackle them head on, then our fate and our future are still very much in our own hands. About a year ago, former TD Bank chief economist Don Drummond published an article entitled Confessions of a Serial Productivity Researcher. Mr. Drummond's premise was twofold. First, that productivity is key to our economic future. And second, that 20 years of costly public policy aimed at increasing productivity has been an unmitigated failure. Of course, Mr. Drummond is right. 
We all know that productivity is fundamental to our economic prospects, and we've all seen the data. In the last decade, Canadian productivity has grown by less than 1% a year, an absolutely dismal record. It's easy for business leaders and politicians to lament Canada's lagging competitiveness and productivity, but let's get down to brass tacks. What do we do about it? What can we do about it? Don Drummond's prescription is for Canadian business to look inward for explanations, for business to critique their own decision-making process. But I believe we also have to acknowledge that our economy is more than the sum of its parts, the product of more than a series of individual decisions made by either government or business. Productivity is itself the result of complex interactions between a variety of economic actors. Economists use terms like spillovers, network effects, and cluster effects to describe these complexities. But any auto worker in southern Ontario can explain them to you just as well. Thirty years ago, when a young man or woman got a job sweeping the floors at a local auto plant in Windsor or Cambridge, they knew, and that company knew, that that young person would probably be working in that same shop 30 years later. The loyalty companies had to their workers in those days, and the loyalty workers paid back, gave companies a clear economic incentive to invest in their workforce. A young person could go from sweeping the floors to working on the assembly line to learning a skilled trade. Some would even move on to positions in management. Today, that same young person will probably have a dozen different jobs in their lifetime. Their boss, who once likely took pride in the size of the company's workforce as a sign of their very success, is now more likely to see downsizing as a necessary part of doing business. And what business is going to invest in a worker they know be, may be working for their competition a few years from now? We have to ask ourselves this question. Why is our government giving multi-million dollar handouts to companies to create jobs that may not, even, may not even exist in a few years? Instead, why aren't we working with companies that invest in our workforce? Politicians may prefer those multi-million dollar handouts for the photo ops they provide, but a photo op is cold comfort when a plant is closed and a community is devastated. We all remember Prime Minister Harper at Electromotive Diesel in London during the last election. Within months of handing Electromotive a $5 million check in the middle of an election campaign, the company told its workers, many who'd been there for 30 years, that they'd have to take a 50-50% pay cut or they'd move their operations to the United States. They did. Electromotive in London is now closed. What experience shows us is that we can tailor the incentives created by government to better serve both individual business and our economy as a whole. L'expérience nous démontre que nous pouvons adapter l'aide gouvernementale aux besoins des entreprises et de notre économie en général. Right here in Toronto, you have a film and television industry that's growing at a rate of 25% a year, more than double the economic growth rate of China. Now, you may say that's only one industry. There are always some industries that grow faster than others. Fair enough. But what makes film and television such an interesting example is that the industry has been around for generations. There's no obvious reason for such a sudden and explosive growth. And this growth can't be explained by increased demand either. Growth here in Toronto is vastly outpacing the industry as a whole, even with the Canadian dollar trading at parity or higher. 
So what explains why an industry that's as old as the automobile would undergo such a dramatic and positive shift? The answer is a partnership among labour, industry and government, a partnership that has delivered results. For decades, Hollywood and New York had a near monopoly on film and television production. They were the only cities in North America with the critical mass of cast, crew and management to produce world-class products. But not anymore. After years of private investment, professional development and incentives in the form of government tax credits, the Canadian film and television industry has developed into a thriving success. An industry that has the size, the experience and the talent to compete with the best in the world that contributes over $5 billion a year to the Canadian economy. Those investments, made years ago, are now set to pay dividends for decades to come. And this story is not unique. We can see the same pattern in many of the success stories of our past. From the investments in education that gave rise to a resilient Canadian high-tech industry to the investments in infrastructure that made Southern Ontario a central player in the North American automotive industry. Each and every one of these successes had one thing in common a long-term vision, a commitment by our leaders to invest in our economic future in ways that made sense for both business and the public at large. Sadly, today, where vision is needed, we find only short-sightedness. Rather than partner with business and labour, rather than step up to the plate and lead, our current government, unfortunately, has a penchant for lecturing and finger-wagging. They lecture Europe to get its act together but try to block international efforts to resolve the European debt crisis. They lecture premiers, but refuse to even attend the First Minister's economic summit being held a few weeks from now. And now they're lecturing Bay Street as well. Conservative Finance Minister Jim Flaherty has been blaming Bay Street for the half a trillion dollars in dead money, his term, held by Canadian businesses. He told reporters in Toronto, and I quote, at a certain point, it's not up to the government to stimulate the economy, it's up to the private sector, and they have lots of capital. I share Mr. Flaherty's concern about large Canadian corporations hoarding cash and cash-like assets, but unlike Mr. Flaherty, I have no interest in lecturing business. We are here to support businesses. La question n'est pas de faire la leçon aux entreprises, la question est d'être là pour les entreprises. I have an interest in using the economic levers at our disposal to jumpstart our economic recovery, to create the economic conditions that encourage Canadian industry to invest. The Harper government's lack of vision leads not only to missed opportunities, but to economic uncertainty as well. Nowhere is this clearer than in this government's complete failure to apply the basic rules of sustainable development. Industry the world over understands that pressing issues like climate change can't be ignored forever. Eventually, business, as they always have in the past, will have to adapt to meet sustainable environmental targets. What industry needs today are clear targets to meet and a level playing field. You've probably heard me talk about the principle of polluter pay. It's something an overwhelming majority of Canadians agree on from coast to coast to coast. But today, Stephen Harper's Conservatives are allowing a few well-connected industries to use our air, our soil, and our water as an unlimited free dumping ground. In many cases, they are simply failing to enforce the environmental laws already on the books, federal environmental laws, the Navigable Waters Protection Act, 
the Migratory Birds Act, the Fisheries Act, the Species at Risk Act. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, a factory owner. Let's, let's pull away from the extraction resources uh, sector for a moment. Imagine a factory owner beaming over his business projections for the coming year. He shows you the numbers, and everything looks good, until you see the factory for yourself. You see that the owner is dumping all of the waste from his factory into the river out back instead of paying a $90 a ton tipping fee, like everyone else, to dispose of it in a sanitary landfill. Very quickly, you would realize that his books don't reflect his real profit because his production doesn't reflect his true costs. Any profit made on a business model like that is artificial. But that's what Mr. Harper is allowing to happen in Canada on a massive scale. That's not just bad environmental policy, that's really bad economic policy as well. At the same time, Prime Minister Stephen Harper's government has poured billions of dollars in direct and indirect subsidies in some, uh, into some of our worst polluting industries. Those subsidies, in combination with rising commodity prices, have led to an artificial rise in the value of the Canadian dollar. And that's hobbling our export industries. And not just manufacturing, but all of our export industries. As a share of the Canadian economy, manufacturing, forestry, and fisheries have nosedived by roughly 40% in the past decade. On the other hand, extractive industries led by oil and gas have jumped by nearly 70% in the same period. What we are seeing here is the destabilization of the balanced economy Canada had built up since the Second World War. In June, the OECD agreed that an artificially inflated Canadian dollar is hurting our economy and hindering our ability to create value-added jobs here at home. There's simply no reason we should have to choose between prosperity for certain sectors or certain reg regions only. Today, Canadian oil sands companies are paid Western Canada select prices for the heavy synthetic crude oil produced in Alberta, while Eastern Canada imports oil at Brent crude prices at least $40 a barrel higher. Contrairement aux attentes de plusieurs, le NPD appuie les propositions visant à augmenter la capacité de l'oléoduc de l'ouest à l'est. C'est une initiative de l'industrie qui a l'avantage de générer des retombées dans toutes les régions du pays. De nouveaux marchés pour les producteurs de l'ouest, des emplois à valeur ajoutée qui sont bien payés et de l'énergie moins chère dans l'est. Let me be clear. New Democrats support recent proposals to increase West-East pipeline capacity. This is an initiative led by industry that will pay economic dividends for every region of our country. New markets for producers in the West, high-paying value-added jobs, and lower energy prices in the East. That's the type of pro-business, common-sense solution that not only creates jobs, it strengthens Canada's energy security and will leave more to future generations than just debt. And in the coming months, you'll see New Democrats begin to focus on the need to invest in the future, in particular to invest in our youth. Right now, young Canadians hit an employment wall after they graduate. They are the most educated and skilled generation we've ever had, yet too many of them are simply unable to reach their full potential. Youth unemployment in this country continues to hover around 15%. A recent study from the University of Toronto and Statistics Canada shows that graduating from college or university during a recession has a devastating effect on a young person's future prospects. 
Graduating during a recession creates an initial wage gap of 9% compared to those who graduate under normal economic conditions. And the effect of that wage gap can last up to a decade, long after the economy has recovered. An economic downturn that at first seems like nothing more than a short-term hardship may ultimately squander the potential of a whole generation. And the truth is, this government's failure to lead doesn't end at our own borders. In 2009, I had the honor to be invited to participate in the New World, New Capitalism Conference hosted by then French President Nicolas Sarkozy. Leaders from around the world were gathered together, seized with crafting a coordinated response to the greatest financial panic since the Great Depression. In Canada, the Prime Minister declared then that there would be no recession here and that no action was needed to stave off economic uncertainty. It was only when his minority government was nearly defeated that the Prime Minister was forced to take action. Now, the United States is once again at the edge of a recession, facing a $5 trillion fiscal cliff this January and another messy fight over its debt ceiling. The European debt crisis has once again exposed the global economy to potentially catastrophic economic risk. And once again, our government is asleep at the wheel, just as it was in 2008. Rather than using Canada's experience and expertise to play a constructive role, this Prime Minister and Finance Minister denigrate our international institutions. The Conservatives' approach of the global economic, economic situation is not only dangerous, but dead wrong. While it's true that Europe is facing a sovereign debt crisis, that reality shouldn't obscure the fact that both the public and private sectors bear responsibility. Both inside and outside the Eurozone, in Iceland, Ireland, Portugal, Spain, and the UK, in every country but Greece, this crisis was brought on not primarily by public borrowing, but by out-of-control financial deregulation in the banking and real estate investment markets. It may be convenient to blame sumptuous European welfare states, to quote one senior Conservative spokesman, but it does us a disservice to pretend that public spending was the root of this crisis and that slashing public services will somehow provide the solution. Today, Canada is held up as an international model for financial regulation. But let's remember, we were not immune to the siren calls for financial deregulation that swept across the rest of the de developed world a decade ago. In the 1990s, Liberal and Reform Party leaders alike joined the same chorus. It was only New Democrats who held the anchor fast against calls for further deregulation. Today, Canadians are glad that we did and that Canada did not go down the same path as Europe and the United States. I won't pretend that Europe and the United States don't face fiscal challenges that need to be corrected, but that will be a long-term process. The European Monetary Union must be accompanied by a fiscal union that integrates their economy along with their political system. If this fiscal union is to be achieved, it must in turn be accompanied by a guarantee of fiscal responsibility, guarantees that have not always been lived up to in the past. We all know that. But as important as long-term fiscal balance will be, immediate austerity cannot succeed if it undermines the very economic recovery needed to restore prosperity and government fiscal capacity along with it. As my friend Lord Langfine said here last week, you can't austere yourself into a higher GDP. Just as we must take a balanced approach to building our economy, Europe must find the balance necessary to resolve this looming crisis. A balance between fiscal responsibility and stimulating economic growth. A balance between fiscal union and national autonomy. 
a balance among the primary, second, and tertiary sectors. New Democrats will continue to support those efforts, and we will continue to promote our own economic goals here at home. Our vision is rooted in one simple belief, that government should serve only one interest, the public interest. Take a simple example. The British think tank, the Tax Justice Network, estimates that today, as much as it's an astonishing figure, $32 trillion in wealth is being held in offshore tax havens worldwide. But if you look at the OECD figure, it's actually of a similar order of magnitude. Those who benefit most from these tax havens also benefit most from the very institutions our tax dollars are meant to support. Our economy is built on a foundation of basic government services that we often take for granted. The police, courts, education, infrastructure. So this is not only a question of economics, it's also a question of ethics. When a dishonest few refuse to live up to their responsibilities, it's the rest of us who have to pay more to make up for it. Governments can't do everything, nor should they. The road to prosperity in the 21st century will require a balanced approach. A thriving private sector will, thankfully, always be the heart of our national economy and the engine of our economic growth. But there's also a common sense role for government to play in building the fairer, more prosperous Canada that we all want. Heureusement, un secteur privé dynamique sera toujours au cœur de notre économie en agissant comme moteur de notre croissance. Mais le gouvernement a également un rôle à jouer pour bâtir un Canada plus juste et plus prospère. Et j'oserais dire, plus prospère pour tout le monde. There's a common sense role for government to play in creating the right environment of stability and predictability that business relies on to profit. In ensuring sound economic policy that fosters productivity and competitiveness without sacrificing long-term sustainability. And investing in an economy better equipped to meet the demands of the 21st century. In knowledge, in research and development, in a more skilled workforce, in matching skills to jobs, there's a pretty convincing argument for the role of government in science, education, and innovation. The best way to create wealth in a society is to increase new knowledge. The role of the NDP over the coming years, and my role as opposition leader, is to ensure that the vision I've described here today is, in fact, achievable. To prove that New Democrats are serious, competent public administrators. In the past, Canadians have often seen our party oppose. Now we have to demonstrate that we can also propose, that we can govern. This is why New Democrats will continue to lay out our vision for a strong, balanced 21st century economy, one that ensures long-term growth that's sustainable growth, one that promotes robust trade as long as it's reciprocal trade, and one that creates highly skilled, value-added jobs right here in Canada. In other words, New Democrats stand for a vision that will create wealth and prosperity right across Canada, not only today, but for generations to come. Je vous remercie beaucoup de l'invitation et je suis maintenant prêt à prendre vos questions. Merci. Thank you. Merci. 
Well, thank you everybody for your questions. If there are any more, um, just note them on your card and somebody will come and pick them up. Uh, the first question is from clearly a very loyal TD Bank <laughs> economics reader um, who asks, who notes that the TD Bank also issued a study this year that shows that racialized communities and immigrants are facing greater challenges, increasingly greater challenges in the job market. Um, so the questioner was curious what your party would do to promote more equitable access and good jobs for people who live in marginalized communities. What a tremendous question and a great question to be asked here in not only Canada's largest city but also one of the most diverse cities in the world and really a world model for people getting together from all over the world and living together and getting along. It's an extraordinary example you've, you've developed here in Toronto. I think that if you look south of the border, you'll understand the same thing. Years and years of efforts to open up opportunities to people to remove inequalities in our society. When I talked about the wall that young people hit when, when they're trying to hit, get into the market at times of an economic downturn, that's magnified in the case of people who are already facing social inequalities or discrimination. So we've got to double our efforts. Large employers who have already got programs in that, in that sense have to realize that they can't exclude the, the first people. You know, it can't be a system where it was the last in who's the first out. If you have a program that has been encouraging diversity, you have to continue with that. That's part of our vision of our society, and it's one that I think large employers like the TD will continue to espouse as well. Um, and picking up on your uh, elaboration on the growing film and television industry here in Toronto, um, a question, what is the role of the CRTC in a potential NDP government? One of the backgrounds that I have is, is and when people, and it was mentioned by you, Alison, you were describing my background is as, as a strong regulator, and it's always been my approach to enforce existing regulation, whether it's in the environment where we see that very often we're not enforcing regulation or in other sectors like the Competition Bureau. We, we had a resignation last week of the head of the Competition Bureau. She was complaining that, for example, she didn't even have the ability to prosecute her own cases. We have to take an approach where we actually do regulate in the public interest. The CRTC has a strong role to play. There are a lot of questions that can be asked about the way the CRTC is doing its job. Go back to the point that I was making about the public interest, and I think that you'll get a part of your answer. But strict enforcement of existing laws and regulations and predictability, I think, are part of what we have to provide when we're in government. There's such a mix of questions. This is fun being the moderator. Um, now we are going around the world to China. <laughs> um, China is one of the largest, fastest growing markets in the world. Uh, what is your policy for how Canada should benefit or you know, perhaps interact would be another word with, with China. Well, I had a wonderful meeting this week with uh, China's extraordinary ambassador to Canada. It's part of my role. And we all understand the importance of enhanced trade with China. We've all got concerns as well with something like the Nexen deal where the very syst the economic system of China makes it quite different from having Total Essa working in the Jocelyn field in, in Alberta. Of course, you know, any company that has, whether it's French or Norwegian, that has government participation, People can point to that and say, well, what's the difference? Well, there is a, a, an objective difference because there's very little difference between the state itself under a communist system and a state-owned business. So we are concerned. We're asking tough questions, and we've got a lot of uh, concerns uh, with the potential sale of Nexon to Sinuk. Uh, and we're going to continue to voice those. We think that the government should be a bit more transparent on this one. They've talked for years now about bringing in 
new criteria for assessing foreign takeovers. We haven't seen those yet. They're saying they're going to announce them after they've rendered their decision in Nexon. As of a week ago, they were starting to talk about security concerns. We'll wait and see if that plays uh, a role. I think, again, predictability is important. We owe it to potential investors to give a clearer definition, but these are valid questions that have to be asked in the public interest. Who's going to own Canada's resources long term? And I guess a follow-up is, um, and maybe if you can elaborate a little bit more on whether, I mean, the question is basically, do you believe that the energy sector will benefit from greatly increased foreign investment, and if so, what we should do from a policy perspective to ensure that happens? Under different uh, trade deals, and Canada's just signed a new one uh, with China as well, there, there are protections for investors. Those can't be allowed to override the public interest. We remember cases involving things like the Ethel Corporation, where an additive that Canada had determined was a potential uh, carcinogen uh, was, was allowed to continue to be added to gasoline here because of a challenge under Chapter 11 of the NAFTA. So we've got to have a, a proper balance. The NAFTA, on the other hand, has opened up um, services, uh, the ability to trade in services more than ever before. We used to have a very balkanized approach to the regulation of professions in Canada and in the United States. We brought in objective criteria like public interest and consumer protection to break down some of the barriers. That's been a very good thing for the economy. So you have to take the same approach. You do want more investment, but you can't allow it to override the public interest. Okay, and do, I, do we have time for one more, two more? One more, okay. Oh, thank goodness. I'm going to try to, there are a, a couple clumps of questions that are closer to home, um, and I'll see if I can, I can put them together. Uh, one of them is about our young people and uh, the recognition that we have had a declining voter uh, turnout for more than a generation, driven largely by an, a disinterest of young people in voting and, and an increasing less likelihood that they ever will vote. Um, so the couple of questions were just curious on your thoughts on how your party may better integrate a new generation into politics. And if I may squeeze in a second question, and perhaps somewhat related, uh, there is some curiosity if you could elaborate a bit on your vision for Quebec uh, in the Federation, uh, and particularly in light of uh, the recent announcement from a particular Liberal Party candidate, <laughs> Justin Trudeau, of his, of his interest in leading that party. Sure. Tried to shove two big things into one. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> uh, that was your expression, shove two big things. So uh, <laughs> with regard to, to young people uh, inv getting involved in politics, we took a particular approach. Uh, we got them all elected. Um, <laughs> in 2011, fully two-thirds, 65% of young people aged 18 to 25 didn't come out to vote. My generation of politician has to take part of the blame for that. We've turned them off from politics because they're very involved, but they'll be involved in a soup kitchen as a volunteer. They'll have be part of an environmental group, but they won't come out to vote. They won't be involved in the political process. So those same young MPs are in the process of doing a cross-Canada tour of all the campuses this fall, lighting a fire, letting young people know that they can make a difference, getting them engaged, getting them involved. I would prefer they take an NDP card, but frankly, I don't care what political party they go into, but I want them to understand that in their very busy schedules, they've got to find time to be involved in the process that's determining the debt that's being dropped into their backpack for the rest of their lives, and we're trying to do that, and it's working well. We're connecting with them. On uh, the, the Quebec front, um, it's an interesting thing that pretty well all of the uh, pundits got the recent Quebec election wrong. We, we like surprising you that way. Of course, you all saw the 59 NDP seats coming. Um, <laughs> but more seriously, that very razor-thin um, 
minority for the PQ sent a signal that people were ready for change, but they weren't ready for, in French, un bouleversement. They didn't want to see their lives turned upside down. Article 1 of the PQ Constitution still says that they're there to break the country apart. So that's something that I'll always be there to stand up against. I fought in the 1980 referendum. I was a lawyer in Quebec City. Catherine and I were, had already founded a family in Quebec City in 1980, and we, I fought hard in the referendum there with my political mentor, a wonderful gentleman named Claude Ryan. And in the 95 referendum, I was already an elected official. So we, we do have, for the first time in a generation, a majority of Quebec seats federally held by a federalist party, the NDP, and that's a very positive sign. Jack and I were able to connect with Quebecers by putting an offer on the table that did not involve a new Meech or Charlottetown, did not involve a, a total upheaval in terms of a restructuring of the Constitution. We put simple, everyday things on the table that added for Quebecers and didn't take anything away from anyone else. I'll give you one concrete example. Since 1977, Bill 101 has said that workers have a right to receive their written instructions from their employer in French, kind of normal in a province that's 93% French. We don't have a similar right with regard, if you're working in a case populaire, the large credit union in Quebec, that's where most Quebecers do their banking, um, you have the right to request your written instructions. You don't have the same right at a chartered bank, although I'll uh, concede that most chartered banks follow the same rule without being required to, but there's no right. So granting that right would not constitute a big change for the employers, would give something concrete to the employees, would not take anything away from the members of the English-speaking community of Quebec, wouldn't affect the rest of Canada, but would make Quebecers feel a little bit more at home because they'd be given the right to get things in their own language in all workplaces, provincially regulated or federally regulated. It's that type of common sense approach that connected so well with Quebecers, the offer that the bon Jack was putting on the table, and that's part of what we're going to try to carry forward as we continue that sort of work in Quebec. Thank you very much. Mr. Mulcair, I do believe you've taken Toronto by storm this afternoon, and on behalf of the Canadian Club, it's my great honour and pleasure to thank you for your invigorating address. I think it's fair to say uncertainty surrounds us. The global economy is still very fragile, discord and unrest are rife throughout the world, and we worry about how our future will unfold. The positive message of hope that you have brought today, I know, is grounded in your party's core values. Now, just a very short time ago, we would have found it quite difficult to imagine that the New Democrats would be the official opposition on Parliament Hill. But as last week's Maclean's magazine cover story tells, and I quote, you are now the Prime Minister's toughest opponent, end of quote. And of course, a very plausible candidate for the Hill's top job. Mr. Mulcair, thank you so much for joining us today to shed insight on your vision for the future. We wish you very well on your leadership journey and we look forward to welcoming you back to our podium in the not-too-distant future. Merci beaucoup. Uh, thank you, everybody, and uh, thank you again, Mr. Mulcair, for, uh, for being with us today. Um, thank you also, as I mentioned at the beginning, to TD Bank uh, for your help and for all your support of Canadian club events. Um, now, before I, uh, 
allow you to begin the conversation but over your tables over a meal. I did want to take a moment just to tell you about a few of our upcoming events that we have at the club. Um, in October, we will welcome our Lifetime Achievement winner, Lloyd Robertson, uh, who will be interviewed by his friend and colleague, Brian Williams, reviewing over 60 years in the public spotlight. Uh, we will also host one of Canada's most celebrated filmmakers, Deepa Mehta, in discussion with the CBC's Matt Galloway. Also this fall, Newfoundland and Labrador Premier Kathy Dunderdale will be here, and we will also celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Grey Cup, uh, where we'll be hosting uh, CFL Commissioner Mark Cohan in discussion with Stephen Brunt. Um, and as I mentioned at the beginning, we would love to see you at all of those, and you can find out more at canadianclub.org. Um, this concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. Um, and we wanted to also thank Rogers TV and 680 News for your continued coverage of Canadian Club events. Um, now, before we begin our meal, I would uh, ask everyone if you could rise as you're able and join us in a toast to Canada. To Canada. Thank you again, everyone, for joining us, and bon appétit.